0: I'd like to make a strong statement to start, and I'm gonna see if I can prove it. Our screens may be the greatest threat to communal warmth. The threat to communal warmth in our homes and in our communities today may very well be the place and prominence of our screens, the way that we're interacting with them and the way that they are affecting us. Let me just start, as we continue in this series in Warmth in the Home, let me start by exploring a little bit of the role of screens, the way that the coldness and the ever-presence of screens is affecting the warmth in our homes. Let me start by just exploring a little bit about our interaction with our screens. First thing that we we have to be aware of if we're going to make sense of what we're going to do together today is this, that our interaction with our screens is increasing and has been in significant ways for quite a while. The average American today is going to look at their screens somewhere between 7 and 11 hours. That's looking at their cell phone, their computer, their television screen. This is a combination of text and emails and YouTube and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and news feeds and blogs that are all ringing and buzzing and dinging all day long. They're all manipulated with a swipe of our finger. We control it all. It all responds to our needs and our comfort not to interrupt us uh, unless, of course, we're welcoming it. It is so ever-present that 89% of you this week had a phantom vibration syndrome. You had this experience? You're walking along and you're convinced that your phone is buzzing in your pocket and you pull it out to see what has happened and there's nothing there. You know the reason? Your central nervous system now reads itch as my phone is buzzing. It can't tell the difference between what's happening in your body and what's happening to your phone because they're slowly melding into one. Our technology is so ever-present, it's actually beginning to reshape us. There are at least three significant effects I just want us to be aware of if we're gonna make sense of our scriptures today and the way that we are going to continue to cultivate warmth. Three significant effects that your screens are having on you and my screens are having on me. The first is this. They're altering our brains. They're actually altering our brains. Harvard Med School did some research and, and uh, produced some material along these lines saying that we've eliminated the space for boredom, which incidentally is the generation of most of our creativity. And so creativity is diminishing because we are constantly filling every, every spare moment with a screen, with information, with infotainment. There is a reduction of deep and sustained thought. Cal Newsom's work entitled Deep Work is a really helpful read that helps us consider the reality that in a season where we are dealing with increasingly complex issues, we are increasingly less likely to think deeply about the world around us, that we don't have the capacity for sustained deep thought because we are constantly interrupted. We are a scattered people. Neil Postman in his book Amusing Ourselves to Death took two future dystopian views, George Orwell's and Aldous Huxley's. George Orwell in 1984 said, Someday Big Brother is going to exercise his power, burn our books, and control our thoughts. Aldous Huxley in A Brave New World said, Someday we're going to be so inundated with trivialities that we cease to read the great books and nobody's going to have to burn them. Postman's argument is that Huxley's view, not Orwell's, has come true. That we are a people that are so inundated with trivialities that we can't think deeply and in a nuanced ways about the world around us anymore. In fact, did you know that our interaction with screens, especially when we, when we start to grow in our addiction towards it, it actually has an impact on us like crack addiction. The effects on the brain matter are similar because simple acts that require very little of us release dopamine into our system. And so we create this little system with simple acts that we go back to the same place time and again. It, re- it re- um, releases pleasure into our system, and as a result, we become addicted. It's actually reshaping our brain chemistry. The first effect of our screens is that it's altering our brains. The second is that it's upending our emotions. In the Journal of the Social and Clinical Psychology, there is a direct relationship that has been discovered in research between social media usage and loneliness and depression, directly linked. That increased social media usage uh, relates to increased experiences of loneliness and depression, and decreased social media usage produces a decrease in a sense of loneliness and depression. This was published in the Journal of of Social and Clinical Psychology. It's affecting our emotional well-being. It's altering our brains, and for that reason, the third impact of our screens is this. It's transforming our relationships. It's transforming our relationships. We are distracted people. We are unable to gauge in nuance. We are able to manipulate and control the relationships in our lives because we are a people that oftentimes are not dealing with human emotion real-time. We receive text messages, and we can answer them when we want to. We will answer them in the ways that we want to, but we're not even a people that make phone calls anymore because oftentimes we we don't want to be distractible in that way. And it's just so unruly to deal with people's emotions real time. So particularly iGen, those who have been raised with internet since the beginning, they're starting and ending romantic relationships via text message. That we are a people that are controlling our world in a way that it doesn't affect us or demand anything of us in deep and emotional ways. And so as a result, our ability to empathize is evaporating. To really enter into other people's worlds and to feel what they're feeling. To move slowly enough to consider them. Which, as we realize as a nation right now, reshapes us into us and them with little nuance and little interaction and little empathy that we segregate down into categories but along political lines or along racial lines and we don't seek to understand the other or move slowly and engage with nuance. We just begin to treat the world in this way that we can manage and manipulate, jump to conclusions and begin to, to war with the other. There is very little empathy in the system in that way. You see, we are being thinned out and we're growing cold It is a theological principle that you will be remade into the image of your God. What you behold, you become. And we as a people spend somewhere between 7 and 11 hours a day beholding a thin, cold screen, and it's remaking us. We will look like what we behold when all is said and done. And so the question is, How do we as a people embody something different? How do we cultivate warmth in our homes and in our communities in a way that we are not remade by a world that is delivered to us in two dimensions, packaged and and sent out as, as entertainment only? But how do we engage in a real world with deep thought and nuance and empathy and emotion? How do we cultivate warmth in a world that is growing increasingly divided and cold? Even in our homes, the way that the ever-presence of screens are dividing us and robbing us of real vulnerability and real connection. What I'd like for us to do this morning is to examine the gifts of incarnation, because I am convinced that we will be a people that cultivate warmth in the face of our cold screens. We will cultivate a compelling warmth that swamps our screens if and when we receive and we give the gifts of incarnation. And so in order to make sense of this, I'm gonna invite you to open the scriptures with me to John chapter one. These verses will be on the bottom of your screen, but I'd love it if you had your Bible open with me and we were able to look at it. We're gonna look at two verses from John chapter one. Two verses, that's it today. Verse 14 and verse 18, because in these two verses, what we get is the gifts of incarnation. This is John's introduction to his gospel as he's introducing us to King Jesus. And he's showing us what does it look like that Jesus took on flesh, that that he was incarnate, that he entered into the system. And what are the gifts that emerge from living an incarnated life? We're going to see this in Jesus's story in John chapter one, verses 14 and 18. So permit me to remind you just before we read these verses what the prophet Isaiah says about the text. He says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We would be really wise to pay attention. John chapter one, verse 14. And the word became flesh. The word here is referencing Jesus. He became flesh and he dwelt Among us, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. Here are two verses in John's introduction that are explaining what does it mean that Jesus came near? What does it look like that he took on flesh? And baked into these verses are two gifts of incarnation that we must receive and give if we're going to cultivate warmth in our communities and in our homes. The first gift is this. It's the gift of presence. Presence, nearness, withness. Did you hear it in verse 14 that it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwelt among us is a very specific term that John has selected on purpose because it carries a bunch of theological weight with it. In fact, that word, if we were just to look at that word throughout the whole of the scriptures, it would tell the story of the whole Bible. And I want to do that just in a couple of minutes. Let's do a biblical theology around that word. That word is tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among us. I wanna tell you the story of the Bible through the word tabernacle in about four minutes. Stick with me as we go on this journey together. Deuteronomy chapter six, God has just set his people free from Egypt and he shows up in all of his power and all of his glory, lightning striking as he speaks to the whole of the people. And when he finishes speaking to them out of the cloud of his glory and his power, they say something to Moses. They say, don't let that happen again. If we are in the presence of God, we will die. We cannot behold the fullness of his glory. So you be our mediator. Go up on the mountain for us. And the reality is that the question of the Bible is this. How can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? That's what they were recognizing. So Moses went up on the mountain and he came back. And by the time he comes back in Exodus chapter 26, he has, among other things, instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the tent that was in the middle of the people of God, where God's presence would exist, so that a holy God could dwell amongst the sinful people. This was going to be the location where God would meet with the priest, and they would disperse His word and His commands for the good of the people. And there was the the tabernacle. In First Kings, we see uh, in First Kings six through eight, we see that Solomon constructs. The temple and the tabernacle that was a tent becomes the temple in Jerusalem, the place of God's presence and power. And then by the time we get to the New Testament, we get to John chapter 1, and here's John saying, let me tell you where God's presence is mediated for the world. It's in Jesus. He is the, the tabernacle. And that tabernacle becomes a temple as his presence gets poured out on his people. We read in Luke chapter 23 that as he breathed his laugh, something happened in the temple. The veil was torn from top to bottom and the presence of God was in the holiest of holies, poured out. And we see that in Acts 2 as the Holy Spirit falls on the people of God. They now have God's presence in them because of Jesus' completed work. And for that reason, throughout the New Testament, you and I are called the temple of God. And one day, Revelation 21, verse 3, God will come and he will tabernacle with his people fully. And finally, the presence of God will be with us and tears and sadness will be no more. That is the story of the Bible. How can people be with God? Listen to me, brothers and sisters. What John 1, 14 is saying is this. God has gone to great Links to be with us. Because withness has great power. Presence has great power. We know this, don't we? I've seen it with my, with my boys growing up on the nights where they have a night terror and they wake afraid. They don't need me to do anything or say anything. All they need is to know that I'm with them. I remember my middle son at moments when he would have these bad dreams. I'd go sit on the end of his bed and he would lay there and every minute or two he'd do this. All he wanted to know is, is dad still there? Is he with me? Because withness was all that was required to create safety and comfort and strength. And it's not just for children. We know this. I've experienced this in beautiful ways in my marriage, that there are days that are hard. And when I get home at the end of a long day, I don't need Ashley to do anything or say anything. But the very fact that she's she's with me, there's power in that. Over the years, as she and I have counseled singles that we love and that we long for, for love and companionship for them, one of the things that, that is driving the desire deep down, it's not just to have a family or to experience intimacy in all the ways that are desired, but, but oftentimes it's just, I just want somebody with me. You see, there's power in withness. The first gift Of incarnation is this idea of coming alongside and just being present. Would you just be present with me? It's the first gift that God's giving in the incarnation, but but it's not all. In verse 18, what we see is that He's not just giving His presence, He's also giving meaningful connection. Look in verse 18 with me. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made Him known. There's one single Greek word for the, for the phrase made him known, and it's exogenomai. What it means is it's, it's the same root for exegesis, which incidentally is what I'm trying to do right now with this text. Faithful preachers do exegesis. They go and they live in the text, and they think deeply about it, and they consider what does it really mean, and they emerge and try to make that meaning plain. What this text is saying is that Jesus is the exegesis of the Father, that he dwelt in the heart of the Father God for all of eternity. He knows who God is and what he is like, and he has emerged to say, and this is what he's like. You see, he has come to make the Father known, and I need us to hear this. Everyone is longing to know and be known. It's in our DNA, because because it starts with God. He longs to know and be known. And he's gone to great lengths not just to be with you, but to be known by you and to know you. That Jesus and the gift of the incarnation is saying, I'm present and I'm connected with you at the same time. These are the gifts of incarnation. We all long for it. The struggle is when it comes to connection, quite frankly, we're very comfortable at peddling in cliche. Cliche is like, oh, it's getting hot out there. Really been sweating. It's getting steamy in Houston, isn't it? That's a good conversation starter. And then it might be in the season of of when we have sports and those sorts of things. It's how about them Astros? What do you think about the Texans this year? We love cliche, and we'll even drop a step below sometimes to facts. We start talking about the facts of what's going on in the world. What's going on in my life? I did this this weekend. Uh, I'm planning on doing this thing, or I I saw this person. We're just relaying the facts. But underneath facts is opinions. Do we actually have opinions about what's going on in the world? This isn't just the headline that I read, but this is the opinion that I have about that. Starting to share in that space is a little bit less comfortable, to experience connection. But you know, under opinions is my emotional response. This fact generates an opinion, but not just an opinion, but an emotional response. And to share that, ooh, now that's getting uncomfortable. But you see, Underneath emotional response is finally where we get to vulnerability, real openness. This is who I am. This is what Jesus has come to deliver about the Father. Not just existing up here, but plunging down below. The struggle is we rarely get below the second or third step with people. And our screens are actually begging us to stay up there. Just stay up there at the headlines. Just keep scrolling. Don't stop and think. Don't engage in nuance. Don't actually... Don't be invested in what's going on and think deeply about it. And so as a result, we skim the top. But the gift of incarnation is, no, I'm going to slow down and I'm going to engage with you and I'm going to go below the surface. The struggle is, and we feel this, that those two things coming together, being with someone and really connected to them, that is a scary equation. Because if they really see me, if they're with me and they see me and they see below the surface, they might reject me. It's risky for you to know my, especially in the climate we're living in today, to have opinions and emotional responses, to be vulnerable about what's going on in the world around us. We go, I don't think I'm dancing into those waters. And so as a result, we retreat and we miss connection. You see, the invitation is to have both of these simultaneously, to be bold and to be risky. That's where warmth comes from. You see, but we have an enemy that has done something with these two gifts. The enemy takes the good gifts of God, he twists them, repackages them, and sells them to us. And that's what's happened with our screens. Presence and connection are separated and sterilized. What do I mean by that? The next time you have the opportunity to go to dinner in a restaurant, you're with a group of people, the next time that sort of thing can happen, I want you to pay attention. Look around and find tables where families or friends are sitting. They're all together, they have presence, but what are they doing? They're connecting, but they're not connecting with the people they have presence with because they've been separated and sterilized because that's safer. They're sitting next to someone that they say is a great friend or a family member while they're starting or ending a relationship with an emoticon. Frowny face, we're not together anymore. Because the reality is to have connection and presence together is too risky. It's frightening. It's costly. And so we want people next to us, but we're gonna connect with those and connect with the whole world all at once, and we're being pulled apart. You see, we're actually becoming a people that can't be alone and we can't be with people. And alone, we invite the whole world in and we start connecting. And then when we're with people, we're distracted and we can't really be with them. That's why it's growing cold. That's why warmth is evaporating. We are losing our capacity to connect social media has done to community what pornography has done to sex it says let me strip it of all of its cost all of its risk all of its emotional struggle and strain and let me just deliver the little uh, smoldering nub of pleasure with none of the cost and the struggle and let me just give that to you and the thing is is that it's a cheap counterfeit and it won't suffice It will rob us of everything that's good about community, just like pornography robs you of everything that's good about sex. And so the invitation is to say, we are going to receive and give the right and true gifts of incarnation. What do I mean by that? What is our solution to this challenge? We must be the sort of people that receive and give the gifts of incarnation. First off, what does it mean to receive them? We have to be the sort of people that enjoy the incarnational realities with Jesus himself. You see, Jesus embraced presence and connectivity even though it was risky and costly. And oh my, was it costly for him. That as he connected with those that he was with, that in that space, he was stripped and rejected and bled and died. He was killed by the very ones he came to love because that is the risk of real relationship. But the beauty is this, that as we receive from him, the word that we receive from him when we've placed our trust in Jesus, when we start to have incarnational realities with him is this, you will never be rejected. By the only one whose opinion matters, who actually sees you all the way down to the bottom of your soul, he's never gonna reject you because his son was rejected on your behalf. And so you're free to risk. You're free to engage, free and full, knowing I'm approved by God, and so I will lean in knowing that at times I will be disappointed relationally, but his grace covers me, and so I will love people truly and radically and vulnerably. The only way that we can do that is if we're regularly receiving from him. Let me encourage you. You need daily, unhurried, screen-free time with God. You need it more now than you have ever needed it. I'm, I, more than you have ever dared imagine that you need it. You need unhurried, screen-free time with God. The world is confusing and complex and the heat is rising, and if we are gonna be salt and light, we need to be people that were remade in the silent places, that know how to do the deep work in the presence with God, that aren't interrupted by bings and buzzes, but we're sitting in his presence and we're beholding him because we will become what we behold, and we've gotta quit just beholding little cold screens, scrolling and looking at highlights and and, and headlines, but we have have to see God and he's willing he's gone to great lengths to be with you and to connect with you will you connect with him the first thing is that we have to learn how to be alone with God we have to receive incarnational gifts and then we have to freely give them freely give incarnational gifts this means modeling incarnational presence in your home with your family with your roommates with those around you labor to be truly present Have screen-free mealtimes. Mom and dad, let your kids see it. Do not take your screens to the dinner table. Screen-free dinner times where we're actually with one another and we're not distracted. Go on vacations where you do outings, where you hike out into God's beautiful world around us without screens and without distractions. Take up the cell phones. Engage in things with your friends where you are without screens. Take regular Sabbaths. Once a week, have a day with very limited screen interaction. We have to put technology in its proper place because it wants the fullness of our soul and it's getting it right now. We need to begin to model incarnational presence. Give this gift to people by actually being present with them. And then, and then, don't just model incarnational presence, but embrace incarnational connection. You see, if we've gone, we've been with God, and we begin to deal honestly with what's in our hearts, now when we're really with people, we can share out of the space of that quiet moment about what God's doing in us, our fears and our weaknesses, the things that we're confessing, and we're actually bringing real depth from the secret places into real connection with people. Now there's warmth. That's real relationship. I remember Ashley and I do a lot of marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling, and we were sitting with one particular woman years ago who was explaining the relationship with her dad. And she said, you know, my dad years ago, he made the commitment that he was going to take me to lunch every Friday. And so from kindergarten all the way through college, he would come and he'd meet me. He'd take me out of class or he drove to my campus and he would take me to lunch every Friday. He was present. And then he would listen and he'd remember what I shared with him last time. He'd remember what was going on with friends. And he, over the years, has become the warmest and the safest spot in my life. I remember the, the, the night sitting with her as Ashley and I were sitting there. I was like, oh God, I wanna be that sort of father. I wanna be that sort of friend that is so enamored with the presence of Jesus and so freely giving it to people that we begin to embody a different sort of warmth, a warmth that is more compelling than the cheap counterfeits that our screen is selling us. We need to be a people that understand what it is to, to receive deeply from Jesus the gifts of incarnation and then to boldly, with, with all the risk that is, that is required, Give these gifts to the people closest to us. Your presence, your connection, and the same time and in the same place. Let us be the sort of people that cultivate this sort of warmth, receiving and giving the gifts of incarnation. Let me pray for us. So, gracious God and Father, um, <laughs> I'm a man easily distracted easily distracted and it's it's such folly that i can be distracted when in the presence of unending and eternal glory and perfect beauty would you forgive me forgive me for giving everything else my attention and my focus would you forgive us as a people and win our hearts all over again give us eyes to see see you for who you are to rejoice in you to set our gaze on you god And I pray that as it relates to the relationships in our homes and with our friends, that we would be the sort of people that give deeply and truly of our presence and of our connection, withness and vulnerability. And that as we we spend the time with kids and spouses and roommates, I pray that our homes and our community would be of a different sort. That we would shine brightly in this world that is in desperate need for warmth connection and understanding and empathy. Make it true. By your grace, by the goodness of your gospel, would you make it true in us? We pray it for your glory, God. Amen.